Hello, I'm Harry Doncaster and this is the Forgotten Book Podcast. In each episode, I will be speaking with a creative to learn more about their process and how fashion or fashion history has affected their creations. I hope you enjoy listening. My guest this week is Magna Hill Kennedy, known by her Instagram followers as Damselfrau, a name that masks itself. The pseudonym has come to mean married to oneself for the artist. The London-based Norwegian creative has now been hand-making masks, or sculptures as she prefers to refer to them as, for over 10 years, and has been featured in exhibitions all over the world and supported by numerous artists and photographers. Her works have expanded upon traditional ideas of masquerade, transforming herself or the wearer, into a space or phantasm. Craftsmanship is key for Magnahild. Each creation utilises a multitude of different materials, often vintage objects that she collects, from ribbons to buttons and beads, and is not confined by typical influences. She can be seen to reference anything from sci-fi movies to traditional Norwegian folklore. Today I'll be discussing her work try to understand a little about her process and where she thinks masks sit within the contemporary artistic landscape. Magna Hill Kennedy, welcome to the Forgotten Book Podcast. Thank you. Um, You've mentioned on a number of occasions that you're not particularly interested in masks as a genre or creative discipline, but that you're coming at your work from a fine art perspective. So rather than calling your creation masks, how would you define them? I mean, they are masks. That's just by accident. It's grown to kind of own that format now, uh, and I'm not going to stand in the way of that. I'm, I think I was trying to to um, understand why I was doing this, and because I have never really been interested in masks at all. Uh, very interested in materials, and very interested in making. Always made a lot, never anything really good, but always made and made and felt quite empty with making. I think that's why the masks has lasted that long as a project, because it's felt like home the whole way through. That was a surprise. And I'm not a very patient person, and I'm not very uh, interested in going deep into things. I, I change hobbies all the time, or I did that through my childhood and, and, and teen years. But this is kind of stuck, and it's moving on its own. So it's, I mean, they are masks, but I, when I make them, I don't think of them as that. I'm just putting the right stuff in the right place. Uh, so, and, and I don't design, I don't draw, I don't prepare anything. I collect a lot of materials, so I rummage around, and then these things will tell you where they want to go, right? So rather than design, is it kind of an organisation of materials? Yeah, I'd say that. And it's, it's the only thing I know as far as... How to attack it. That's the lingo I know. Um, you first started making masks in 2007 when you moved to London and you've mentioned that you went clubbing a lot and created outfits and eventually masks. What was that period of life and creation like? Very good. I, I had planned to move to London since I was a teenager. I come from a the third biggest city in Norway, which doesn't say much. <laughs> uh, and it was, it felt small for me. And it's it's a sort of like the home of rock in Norway. And I'm far from rock interested. <laughs> I'm a techno person. Um, but yeah, I planned to move here for the longest time. 
but it never I never managed I moved to Barcelona for a while I uh, lived in Oslo for a while and then I met Robert and Robert was also interested in getting out well I asked him to come with me and he said yes in a few seconds amazing yeah, no, it was great. Such and then an we adventure. moved. Yeah, it was it really adventure. I mean, it was that was my sort of late twenties, just before thirty, so it was quite late, you know. But we uh, moved here, and it didn't take long. We met um, an, a designer called Alexandra Groover, who uh, we met the first week we were here. Robert met her at some. Uh, Business seminar at King's Cross. Or <laughs> wow, something. sounds so we, like nineties. <laughs> no, we had uh, we we came here with a plan of opening a, a clothing shop, but then the economy was really bad, and we found out that we we're just going to have to um, sniff out the city differently. Um, and then we met this uh, girl Alexandra, and she worked at Portsmouth, and she just took us under her wing. And she just brought us around to everything and introduced us to everyone. And she was just an angel uh, in the beginning. So we had a really smooth start. We were kind of shot into everything that was really exciting. And of course, we're in East London. We lived in West Hampstead. Then we moved wow. quickly over yeah. to Haggerston. And then we went, I mean, this was when Boombox was. And then Pony Step started. And there was... Uh, Last Tuesday Society, which I quite like, it was very small then yeah. in comparison that's to what it is now. now. Uh, so it's very charming then. Mm. And that's where all the mask stuff started. Because I, 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 I'm a collector, I always collected like little lace and ribbon and stuff. And there was this New Year's Eve party. And I made masks for me and Robert and our friend. And I can't remember not making masks after that it was just something about the format it was just it's a very satisfying format because it's small and it gets sort of like and it's the crown right it's in the middle of your face it it's sort of it's not like makeup that you take away or whatever it can it lasts yeah uh, so it's an identity or something that you can keep at madame jojo's i met this guy who ran a a vintage designer shop up in Islington. It was called Palette London. And he gave me a job like that. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. A miracle as well, I'm sure, when oh. you've moved to London, you're like, I need a job. Yeah, no, amazing, amazing. And he would, and this was like old, really beautiful stuff, like bizarre sort of 50s coat, American coat makers, like things like that. And uh, he'd just let, he'd let me sit and work. Whilst I was at work, so I was looking through all these clothes, and a lot of them were very old, they were falling apart. So you get to see how they were done on the inside. Amazing. And that sort of, I've always liked deteriorating stuff. I, I like things that look like they've been schlepped through the mud, like, yeah. and that they've been somewhere and done a job. Uh, so I, all of this was just really, really, this informed me a lot. And at the same time, because we moved here, I went to car boots to get stuff for our new life. All of those things just informed it. Then the work just started, which obviously wasn't work at the time. It was for fun, which it still is. Yeah, and it's really interesting the way you've like kind of captured it as if you've like uncovered like a little pocket of history of London. It and you kept like discovering that. London through these really interesting and through like fashion history in a way you kind of discovered the city. It, it 
felt very much like that. It felt like I slotted in in some kind of like cross section uh, of something that was really rich. Uh, with all the people we met so fast and, we, and which made us feel like we, we had made the right choice and we kind of belonged here and I never felt like I belonged that much anywhere else so uh, I think my sort of teenage self already spotted that but uh, I just didn't get into it. Which is amazing and so is a way London has allowed you, I, would say, I wouldn't say reinvent but kind of rediscover yourself? No, I, I would say invent. I would say discover, because uh, I hadn't found hadn't found anything that sat in a way that felt relaxed. Like everything was trying to sort of engineer very hard, identity-wise and and work-wise. But it just felt like I suddenly sat down. And imagine that you've never sat down before. Yeah. <laughs> and with the masks, in a way, it's kind of like they give you a moment of identity because you get to. You don't have to be yourself when you're wearing a mask because no. as you say you can't take it off unless it's completely off and you have to reveal who you are underneath. Yeah. I mean, that that part of it, I don't wear masks. It feels really incestuous when I wear the stuff I make. I normally I photograph them at the end of making them and that's the last time I ever put them on. Because it's just uh, the mask thing. I mean I used to wear way much more makeup before. I mean they might be part of getting older as well, but I just feel like I've, I've been able to shed a lot of my person into that stuff that I've been making. So all that makeup and all the stuff that I used to do with myself, that's kind of just like got me into that. I'm just washing through, through making these pieces. In the end, I'll just be like a white sheet of paper. <laughs> Amazing, a blank canvas. <laughs> yeah. But so that's what, uh, going back to your um, like process, you, so you shoot them and you upload them to Instagram. Yes. And um, you've said that a mask isn't finished until you have taken a portrait of it and sent it out into the general internet highways. And internet highways has now become an amazing expression that I want to use in every situation. <laughs> I can just imagine you on like a, in a little car driving through Instagram. Um, but it's fascinating that the internet is the final step in completing your work rather than a way to present the final item or the final piece. Like, how is, is it the revealing of it that makes you feel like it's finished? That's just the travel for them. I mean, to facilitate for them to work for themselves. Because I've never, because the, the slow process of how I've come to do this, I've made sure not to make, well, I've tried to make as few conscious decisions as I can for the work. Of course, I make a million decisions all the time, but it, it, I try my best to let them do their own work. I've never taken contact with anyone or tried to show people my work or tried to sell myself in any way other than Tumblr and Facebook and Instagram because when you send them out there they do their own work they'll meet the right people they'll meet the people that are interested in them not me trying to serve up this stuff uh, but that just had to do with me becoming confident and, uh, and I've given that as much time as it needed and I've also found that through that exercise that the work stands on their own two feet very well they don't need me at all and then I feel confident with just like letting them just roll out there and then I can forget about them and just throttle. And that's why you don't put them back on? You don't have to come back to that point of creation? Or... No, I don't know. I mean, 
have I have them around me in boxes all the time. Like they're laying there sleeping. I feel bad for them. I'm very pleased every time they get to do something or get to be in some exhibition or whatever. Because they're really sleeping. But I, I just, I need to get on. I like speed and I like to make many at a time. If I'm making one piece that's particularly slow for me to get through, I have five others that I work I have up to five to ten pieces going at all times. Oh, wow. I'm a techno person. Like, I'm a... The Constant. Beat, the beat just needs... Uh, yeah, I, I like speed. I need to work a lot and fast. I enjoy that. That's and I great. think that's why I don't really revisit them a lot. I do a bit on, on, online. I mean, I repost them. I don't, I don't work with seasons or with collections or whatever. They come out when they come out. And I found that that kind of works as well. Yeah. So that, that was lucky. That continual stream, and it's perfect, I guess, for this generation of how we consume content, that it's not seasonal anymore. Art or fashion isn't something that you consume once or twice every six months. It's mm. something that you want to look at constantly and revisit, I guess, and something new. But I think what I really find interesting is that you name each of your works, which isn't, I, I don't, it's not a very different concept in art, but with the masks, is it because... When you're wearing them, you feel like you're becoming a character or there is a character within the mask or is it just because you need to identify them? Just because I need to identify them. I mean, they're really helpful for themselves to name themselves. I mean, it's it's very easy process once they're done. I mean, I look at them and see if I can isolate some kind of personality or animal or a certain color or whatever. And then I go through, I Google what's the name of this in Latin and or what's the name of this in Indian and then I look at it to see what kind of tone it has is it a vocal or a consonant or and that's again the sound and temperature is quite important for that it, is it an open or a closed so the names just comes through like a taste exercise it's a light-hearted and nice nice sort of way to round the process up you know finish it like exclamation point or so you've mentioned briefly that so you grew up in new uh in norway and yeah. um, with two very creative parents your mother was a fine artist and your father a sculptor mm. so it sounds like art has always been part of your day-to-day -day life always the, the whole house was about it i mean my brother said to me quite a few years ago when we none of us knew what we were gonna do with our life and he was just don't worry we'll become artists we haven't learned anything else and he is so right. Like there was no, I've I never been good in school, so I wasn't wasn't gonna go any academic way. And my dad was uh, when I was a kid, he was first teacher and then dean on several art academies around Norway. So it kind of felt weird to go to these art academies because it was always always it was full of dad already. And my mom is, is a brilliant artist. They're both really good. I understood that as a grown-up age, obviously, because when I was a kid, it was just boring. <laughs> uh, but they're, they're, they're friends and they're colleagues and those few people who were really interesting, anyway, in my eyes, were the people that, in my town, was the people that they surrounded themselves with. Like, they would be from Sri Lanka and from deep south uh, USA and there would be this really exotic and amazing people who came into our life and introduced music and they cooked. So there was, I felt like our house 
wasn't my hometown. It was like a place. There was a, it was a pier for like a little artistic commune or something. Like, kind of. I mean, of course, that's how I remember it. Like sort of the the essence of it now is that there was always these people that were so exciting in our in our house. But yeah, no, all art was always around. Of course, academic art, which is very different from what I do. And I think I probably had to move away to come find out that I could work with this and that it could also be art um, without sort of holding up a piece of paper. Or, or I was a waiter for the longest time. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that, but did you feel like you, it was buried deep down inside of you and you were trying to get it out? Absolutely. I felt that I was really unsatisfied with everything in life. <laughs> Uh, and it's because I, I, I knew I had to make something. When you're when you're brought up in a family where people are so invested in their own work and identify so strongly with the stuff that they make, um, I'm quite jealous of that. I really wanted that too. And I also felt like I'm, I mean, I've, my parents they're quite elegant people in the sense that they have eyes that are amazing, the way that they look at stuff, the knowledge that they have. I've been infused with a lot of sort of workouts continuously with looking at stuff. We do all this sort of what everyone did in the 80s, drive through Europe and look at every museum and every gallery and every church and every whatever. Um, so my whole life has been just like being sick, like oh, bored. Yeah, of, one thing is overload, but I'm bored in a museum. Uh, but of course, you you taken in stuff you were running around there or whatever and just hoping for mcdonald's or something around yeah. the corner uh, so i've been i my parents were clever they just infused me <laughs> with all this information which i was quite reluctant to i was interested in fashion in clothes and, and beauty i love beauty uh, in a sense or, or um, i liked opulence and because our home was functional everything could turn into a work table so that a time of year that like Overnight, my parents would make our house into Christmas, which Christmas is like for me, just like the holy grail of everything. Because suddenly, like a work table would turn into a sofa with cushions on it, and there would be like there would there would be incense and red apples and Christmas tree and just fantastic. From function to fun From, in like yeah, the night. in like that. Amazing. So that's well, it's not related, but that's just they've always made sure that there's like I've learned sort of sensitization and that you can elevate something from nothing with just a few touches and that the intention is important and all these kind of things. That's beautiful and I think that's it's quite interesting because art and fashion has had a very complicated history and I think now people are starting to see fashion as a more artistic medium, especially because with the work of the V&A and how mm. fashion is becoming more and more apparent in artistic situations. But do you find it difficult in some ways to categorise your art and your work because it is wearable and so it, become, it goes into that region of fashion? Or mm. is it not something that you even think about? No, nothing. But I don't relate to that at all. I, again, I've taken kind of the easy road there because I've not tried to choose for these guys that I'm making what they have to be. 
So you just have to sort of cross your fingers that they'll meet different people that project different things to them, you know? Still running through the kind of the gallery trying to find the McDonald's and <laughs> pulling everything you can and, and placing it there and running past it, I guess. Yeah, a bit. Yeah, no McDonald's though. Just no, that's it. no, <laughs> for the record. Nice vegan life. <laughs> yeah. But it's, uh, it's, I just think that it, it masks, and masks become what gets projected onto them. So it's none of my business where they end up or what, what people see in them. And the same person will see different things. And so I'm just kind of sitting, sort of like just sitting and looking and waiting to see what they can become next and just crossing my fingers and hope that they get a good ride, you know? Because it's now, I, I've, I've just kind of seen through clients and through who's interested that, aha, they, they, can, they can travel several places and be art and be fashion and I don't see why they have to be either or. So both it is. Yeah, I want everything for them. Whether, whatever they want, they shall have. <laughs> I love I love the they and the them and the, they're sleeping. So do you feel like they're friends or are they family? Are they your, like, not children, but? It's just like, they're like sort of scales that I grow and just like shit. Amazing. <laughs> you know? No, they, I mean, of course, I mean, they, they I put, First of all, I put a lot of materials I care for a lot into them. Because you've used human hair and fossils and... Yeah, that old clothes that people have been raving in. Like, just all these kind of things. People give me things when they travel, they find stuff. Uh, and they think of me, you know, when they see something. And that's really heartwarming to me. So, And to be able to put that into something, that just loads and informs that piece. For me, personally. Uh, so this, it's this, um, and they're kind of, they're kind of my breathing a little bit, you know, like I, I, you spend some, time goes so fast in London, you get very aware of time and you've been sitting there for a while with this thing and, and it's meditative and I try not to think too much and it's such a comfortable and lovely place for me to be with them. But no, I'm not, I'm not terribly emotional. I mean, I my favorites they change all the time and i don't think of them that much once they're done and finished they've kind of i've i've been with them you've had your time and it's now someone else's chance yeah oh they they can fend for themselves you know like they you gotta you gotta hope that for your stuff don't you that it will speak for itself and that it doesn't need you to convey anything for it Amazing. Like absolutely everything I do. It's so. great. It's very refreshing. So many people don't, especially not in London. With and with all of the bus noises outside of the windows, right, I'm sure people are going to feel like they're in London, regardless of where they're listening. Oh, but it's the best too. place, and it really all of this stuff feeds me so much. Yeah. Like my husband would be like, "What? You're going to Soho on a Saturday?" I'm like, "Let's go to Soho on a Saturday." All this sort of not in the evening, obviously, but during the day. Saturday. But there's sort of all these heads bobbing, like you can't see the pavement because there's so many people. That yeah. energy is crazy. No, I live for it and I love the tube and so many people hate the tube of Russia and I'm like, I can, I feel the energy, it invigorates me. <laughs> me too, man. That's why I'm here. I didn't move here not to see lots of people and have lots of noise. It's nice to go to a big park once in a while. Yeah. But I, I like to feel like the city's just working. It doesn't need you to be there. It's already really busy. It's really keeping everything sort of pumping. And you could just surf on that. 
Are we like that? Definitely. So let's go back a bit. You held your first solo exhibition in Shoreditch back in 2011. How has your work grown since then? And again, now after the exhibition you held last September in your hometown's National Museum of Decorative Arts. My dad, he came to see the last show and he's like, oh, how are you feeling? And I was like, I don't know. What do you feel? Because you just, you work up towards something and then it's kind of just there. And then it's just doing its own thing and it doesn't need you and you need to go and invent something else to do. Uh, it's, I obviously feel like that first show, there was the first time, my, I, I was pretty fresh and oh yeah, I mean, not fresh, but young in my work. And it had only been, I've been doing it in my living room and my husband worked as a buyer down at a clothing shop called Start in Shoreditch. And they put my work in the window for Christmas. And then this gallerist in the same street saw it and was like, mm, this should probably go in a gallery. Amazing. And then he gave me a gallery show. And that was, I grew tons on that. Because the thing with removing those pieces from the body, because I put them just in light, in light tables that we built. And just seeing that they could do a job as a sort of autonomous little piece of cloth laying there. I mean, that was, and it still be, still evoke, evoke loads of stuff. That was a really good experience. And then I was also feeling a bit like, ha, oh, okay, this is also a craft. Like you could do gallery stuff, maybe. Let's try that. And then we produced several shows ourselves in a place up in Dalston called Dalston Pier. So then you have, and again, that's speedy work. So that's very nice. You, have, you bring in all your friends, put everything up one day and then it opens two days and you take it down in one day. And that speed is really amazing. This last show that I did in Norway, that was, I went there, it was weeks of production beforehand. Wow. I mean, I've known that I was going to do that for two years. So it's been rolling around up there for a long time and, and you imagine a million things. And I mean, I see very early in the process always how I'd like for it to look because I mainly, I don't, I don't do a lot of props and stuff. I'm like, what does this space look like? We'll use it as a space it is. And then we'll kind of work around the space. I like that. I read, I, it's interesting to work within architecture. And I am not a good architect or I'm not a good interior designer or whatever. So it's important for me to just see how intelligent people have worked and then try to sort of ride on that a yeah. bit. I went up there and met the people there and it's an institution and I know this museum well from my childhood. So I remember the smell of it. I remember the sound of it. It felt like I came home to some kind of organism that I, I knew and they let me do whatever I wanted. I covered the whole building with vinyl with prints on it and they let me show as many pieces as I wanted. And it was very free. I mean, this isn't a huge institution, so there's not all these designers and people that has a lot of opinions in it. But that was long and that was heavy as a mental exercise to be in the same room for two weeks and putting things up because you question everything. And I'm not very fond of questioning myself. I like to roll and just be instinctive and then like when you're done with it it's like it's it's done now you just along right so a number of your creations were captured by mark hibbert in vogue ukraine and in another magazine what is your relationship with the fashion industry because obviously they see your work very differently to the art industry do you feel like there is a difference 
If it is, it's none of my concern. And again, not my business. I, it's, uh, and I also think that all of this mix. I've, I kind of make what I make. I don't, I've, I don't, I haven't let either intervene into how I am, like how I work or, I'm not trying to turn it more to, towards art or towards fashion. Before we started recording, we touched on a little bit about um, Daphne Guinness. And mm-hmm. um, she was the first kind of celebrity, I guess you could call her, or person of knowledge. The first person of knowledge. Yeah, I mean, she was, because she knows. When I met her, we worked together, which is three years ago, I think, this in her music video, I felt like, it was a coming of age situation for my work because she acquired the pieces that she used for the video and, and I thought when she wants them it must be proper handiwork then so I must know what I'm doing which seven years in isn't too bad as no. far as sort of learning slowly on through YouTube by your mom so but yeah that was definitively uh, coming of age situation for the work absolutely did she keep them yeah amazing so they're there sleeping in her house somewhere yeah um, which is very cool because she will have a museum at one point won't she the collection which she has and i'm just like crossing fingers showing as many <laughs> labels in the back as you can like it was me guys <laughs> having this reoccurring dream about me being a really old lady in a hospice in New York or something where someone comes in and there's this little prune of a person dead in a bed with all these boxes with masks around and someone's like who is this? Nobody knows. Just all these masks. That's my reoccurring dream of how it's all going to end. And they'll discover <laughs> this podcast and they'll all be wonderful <laughs> and they'll be like we know who she is guys. That's right. <laughs> um, but mentioning movies that like that is like a very cinematic imagination of what your future could entail and movies seem to have really can they can have an effect on you because your references are so amazing like some masks you can see referencing sci-fi but others like Nordic folklore like do you re-watch movies and yeah yeah no I have I I watch movies all the time whilst I work if it's something I like I'll watch it five, five times back to back through a day uh, I mean it's just there to set a mood I don't really listen to music when I work because music is very evocative and music leads me uh, it leaves a lot of space for you to fill in a way um, medium wise so music has never worked for me whilst I work because it's too strong uh, whilst a film is already saturated like that's already has all it doesn't need you like it doesn't it doesn't open for you to take part in it in the same way so that's just like just fruit a, a plate of beautiful fruit to look at you know whilst you're working that's kind of keeping you going and again i really like speedy things so i like there's a lot of sci-fi a lot of full throttle violent film can you name any i'm really intrigued i want to know it's not, it's not that but no, i think the last film that i, I mean i have a lot of films that i rewatch. a lot i think sort of my first memories of films are more poetic though are uh, the last emperor that's like one of my first big sort of i went to the cinema several times i was nine or something i think when that came but fantasy always but sort of the last sort of big 
oomphy film that I would watch again and again. Again, it has to be films that doesn't demand too much of me. Because if it demands a lot of you, then you have to focus. If you fo- fo- so unfortunately, there's a lot of foreign films that I don't watch whilst working because okay. I can't follow the dialogue. Yeah. When I saw Mad Max Fury Road, I watched that so <laughs> Amazing. Have you seen it in black and white? I did, which was just as beautiful. Changed everything though, didn't it? It's yeah, beautiful yeah. in a completely different series of ways. Loved it. I do like the colour one though. Yeah. Because it's just, it works a lot on the side of your eye. Mm. Uh, but I, I do, yeah, post-apocalyptic stuff I like. But I, yeah, that one was the last one I saw that was just like hefty, hefty. Anything Keanu Reeves, anything that's, uh, yeah, anything Matrix. Um, try always like I can't remember a single film anything in Benicio del Toro I watch because okay. uh, he just amps up the color amps up the colors a lot like you know Pacific Rim shit like that yeah uh, I mean it's great. stupid and great yeah you know? I really want to see your like Rotten Tomato reviews like did twenty yeah. masks to this it was <laughs> yeah. great really recommend to, like creatives. <laughs> Somewhere, like scroll, scroll down Pacific Rim, there's just your like five stars. Yes, yes. Well, I feel like that's what the masks are doing. They're stupid and fun and they come out fast, you yeah. know? <laughs> like, they're just the same kind of. Because everyone, and I, my uh, Norwegian accent is, re- I have a really broad dialect because I come from sort of further north. And when I speak in my own uh, dialect to people just that are from Norway about my work, they're like, I can't believe you sound like this and you make this kind of work. Because people think I'm refined and like I'm just such a sailor, you know. <laughs> I'm not that. I'm not that. Uh, not that sweary in English, but I'm very sweary in Norwegian. Brilliant. We should have recorded in Norwegian. I wouldn't have known anything, but there'd be an audience that would have loved it. Sadly, we're going to have to round this episode up. But before you go, I'd like to ask you the three forgotten book podcast questions. First up, what's your first fashion memory? So when my mum was travelling, she'd always bring paper dolls from wherever she went. And once she bring, she brought me back, Erte did paper dolls with fashion of the 20s. Wow. So there's this beautiful French, with the Erte drawings, just the most beautiful thing. Um, but 20s fashion, flapper fashion. That, I remember that as sort of, that's still hugely informative. I like that's really informed stuff. I remember that as very strong as far as clothing being something else that utilitarian, you know. Twenties mm. paper dolls. Yeah, Erte. That's great. Oh, yeah. Um, are you forgetful? Very. I can be your figurehead for this because <laughs> I am... And I find it, and it's a resilience in that, I think. It's very important to be forgetful. You will slide through life easier. I like to hear that. <laughs> and finally, uh, what are you currently reading? Ah, I'm not a big reader, but I collect books. I have a lot of books, and my bed is full of books. My husband decided to move into another room because I have my his side of the bed is full of books. I, so at the moment I have a, I'm not necessarily reading one at the time, I have a lot of books that I look into. So right now I have a, a biography about Maria Kalaf. Just got uh, Dinah Reeland's memos uh, in Vogue from the 60s and 70s. Beautiful. Just got that the other day, so that's not there. Um, Tony Duquette, 
was a, I don't know if that's how you say his name, but he was a set designer in Hollywood and he has a house called Dornridge. It's delicious. It's just a fat coffee table book with images from his house. Nice. And the, the way that he made the stuff in his house is just amazing. Well, Magna Hill Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Forgotten Book Podcast. It's been my pleasure. It was wonderful to learn more about Magna Hill Kennedy's process and work. To discover the Forgotten Book publication and our edition on the theme of masks, head over to our Instagram, The Forgotten Book, or our website at www.theforgottenbook.co.uk. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode.